One of the things that really interested me about Mike's book is his emphasis on how so many of the films and TV shows, books and songs that we read uh, carry echoes of the biblical narrative. And uh, at the same time, though, Mike, you were kind of resistant to the kind of highbrow, lowbrow yeah. distinction, uh, treating some, like maybe some TV shows, kind of being serious art, like Mad Men. Uh, and then we'll turn around and talk about uh, kind of a, a more popular level, Days of Our Lives, right, or a soap opera, sure. or something like that. Um, and he's equally interested in drawing out kind of echoes of these biblical and, and other maybe narratives. Maybe not Days of Our Lives. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Dave Foster Wallace would have appreciated it. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, but drawing these echo, uh, narrative echoes uh, out of the, uh, a wide range. And one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you about was kind of uh, leaving aside the question, which I'm sure will come up at some point, about um, like what's appropriate and inappropriate, right? This question that he asks in the book about like how far is too far? What should and shouldn't I watch? Uh, maybe on moral grounds. Maybe leaving that question aside for a minute. Um, one thing I'm interested in is if we kind of dissolve or if we're not as invested in this highbrow, lowbrow divide, like... Yeah. How do you decide yeah. like what to watch? Is it based purely kind of on interests or on recommendations that you get? I mean, what's kind of uh, your your measure for taste? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's something to be said. So I'll, I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth on this. There's something to be said for for having respect for um, kind of the tradition, the critics, all of that. There was somebody on Twitter yesterday. Um, I was flying to get here. And I, I got off, uh, I, I had a layover in Baltimore, and I get off the plane, and I, I click over to Twitter, because I'm a junkie, and, um, and I had like 20 mentions, because somebody got onto, um, somebody got onto Twitter and started trash-talking Bruce Springsteen. And this, this whole thread comes about how Bruce Springsteen's a terrible songwriter, and he contributed nothing to the American songbook, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and... and um, and John Stark, who's a buddy of mine, written a few things. John Stark's comment I thought was kind of perfect. He said, we're at a point, he essentially said, we're at a point in our history where you don't get to judge Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen judges you. <laughs> um, and I think it's perfect because what he's saying is he's saying you have, there's a canon in any kind of artistic uh -huh. field. There's sort of a canon, you know. We don't have to, like, we probably shouldn't be debating any longer whether or not the Beatles were great. The Beatles were great, you know. There's consensus on that. And so when you come to an art form, and especially when you come to an art form with a critical eye, um, if, you, if that's the way you, you like to engage things, then there's wisdom in going, I want to respect the canon. And if I don't like Bruce Springsteen and it doesn't resonate for me, then I need to, I'm, then there's one or two things going on. It might not be my thing, and that's okay. Or I might need to think more and engage more to understand why is that, why is that worthwhile. So that's one side of the argument, which is I think it's worthwhile to sort of look at these different things and go, okay, there's a canon. There's, a, there's an AFI top 100. Like those movies are going to stand the test of time to some degree or the other. The Oscars may not. A lot of the best pictures you'll never see and you'll never want to see. Amen. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, something like the AFI top 100, the American Film Institute, is interesting because it's they're, they're regularly, I think every five years, they sort of revisit that and go, okay, what are the films that really matter? Um, and so if you want to engage thoughtfully with this stuff, there's wisdom in saying, okay, I'm going to go to the canon, and uh, lowercase c, <laughs> canon, I know I'm in a seminary, um, and, and respect, you know, respect, respect those things and try to understand them. On the other side of it, um, I would say, 
you can kill yourself with that and kill yourself trying to read stuff that you don't like and you don't enjoy um, because you think you're supposed to. And so I think there's, there's, there's a worthwhile thing in saying if you come to an art form and it's not your thing, that's okay. And that doesn't mean that it's bad art and that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Um, it just means that it doesn't make your heart sing. And so, um, you know, we, I, I, gosh, we could talk about Wallace this whole time. I don't want to do that. But, I mean, Dave Foster Wallace, one fine. of the greatest, you know, <laughs> one of the most important writers of the last couple decades, you know, he was addicted to junk TV mm-hmm. and to junk novels. He loved dime store novels. Um, <coughs> taught him, too, like in a college him. setting. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, he, I mean, he made the argument, he and Mary Carr make this argument that, that Stephen King is our generation's Dickens. Um, <laughs> Because of his, well, and because, because of the way he humanizes characters and he takes these, he popularizes these stories that, where the craft is really intelligently done. Um, and so I would just say sort of, there's both ends of the spectrum. If you want to be a critic, then you, you darn well, um, or if you just want to be critical on Facebook, you darn well <laughs> better respect the canon. Um, but if you want to just, if you're, if you're reading for pleasure, if you're watching for pleasure and all of that, then don't feel constrained by that stuff like, like that's what you're supposed to do. You know? If you just love X-Files fan fiction, then have at it. You know? Can I follow? Yeah. So in this kind of like Twitter age where there's this proliferation of media, there's more films, more TV shows. Right? Every time I turn around and someone's like, have you watched whatever? And I'm like, no, yeah. is it on Netflix? Or, um, <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't even keep up. So... Kind of what's your, this is a really practical question, what's your take on like starting versus finishing things? Like are you the person that has to finish the book, finish the TV show, or will you drop it after 20 pages if it doesn't? I totally believe in dropping after 20 pages or one episode. Um, um, I mean, I don't think of myself as as a film critic when I write about movies and that kind of thing. I think of myself coming to these primarily like... I'm primarily interested in almost like anthropology. Like, why are, why are we doing these things? Why are we telling these stories? Why are we doing these things? Or I come into them as fans. Um, I'm a movie junkie more than a, than a critic. And so, for me, it's, yeah, I don't believe, like, you've got to finish. You've got to finish the book. Because, um, I can't remember who, I, I read somebody recently writing about this, that essentially saying it's the author's job to interest you. Um, it's the storyteller's job to keep you interested. And if that's not working... You know, again, it may not be—it may not mean that the art is bad, but it might mean that the art is bad. Um, uh, but either way, like, why torture yourself? You know, uh, there's plenty of things in life you have to do. Watching a movie certainly isn't one of them. And we were talking about uh, Alan Jacobs, who teaches at Baylor. Uh, we were talking about him while, while we were eating, and he has a book called uh, "The Pleasures of Reading in the Age of Distraction," right, yeah. where he uh, d- says the like the primary criterion by which you should decide what to read is like your whim. Yeah. Right. Not just uh, some, some yeah. canon or whatever. But. Well, and Esther Meek has this great little book. She's a philosopher. has this great little book called The Little Handbook of Knowing. And one of the things she says that's so good, is she, she basically says, you should be driven by what you love. And if you love a topic, if you love a thing, you're going to devote yourself to it. You're going to pour yourself into it. You're going to know it well. And um, I think that's as true for our hobbies as it is for our vocations. Let, let what draws you, let what excites you uh, draw you into things because... If you're driven by, by a love and, and an affection for that kind of work, um, then the way that you come to know that world and the way that it, it nourishes you 
is going to be much richer than if you're driven by sort of duty obligation. So balance that for me because I love pornography. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, it, it, yeah. you could go in a lot of different directions with that. So when we talk about oh, yeah. we don't want to just let loves drive us. We also have to shape our loves, John right. 14, 21. So th oh, if you think about that. No, no, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a great need for, for sort of for sort of thoughtful guardrails on that. I mean, I mean, just to get to the just to get to the how far is too far question. Yeah, hey, let's get that out of the way. Um, I think there's there's sort of two impulses I've seen in in Christian culture and, and in my church in, in particular. On the one end, you have like the, the the Dana Carvey church lady impulse that's like you know if you watch too much television, it's going to steal your soul and you're going to go to hell. Um, <laughs> the other end of the spectrum is sort of this this. A antsy 13 year old you know who's the guy every time the youth group meets raises his hand and says hey how far is too far you know with with his girlfriend and and so there's sort of a similar there's sort of a similar thing i think that happens with with uh with the way we engage uh with media because the impulse is to go well i have freedom you know and so i'm going to watch whatever i want and um and just sort of rest in the fact that you know if i screw this up god's got me you know and he'll forgive me um and I think uh, my thoughts on this are number one. I think we, um, I think we never have an excuse to engage stuff thoughtlessly, um, because thoughtless engagement is going to lead to a certain kind of entrapment. Every story that you're telling has stories have a worldview. They have a posture. They have a way that they know and communicate a knowing about the world. And so when you when we engage on thoughtfully. Um, those things have a real power to sort of shape our affections and shape our hearts in ways that can be really, really destructive. Um, and so that's true on one end. On the other end, I think the, the, the church lady impulse fails to take into account the way stories often work. And so, you know, a show like Mad Men um, might get dismissed out of hand by some because, well, that's really dark, that's really dark, you know, material. Um, but what Matthew Weiner is doing in Mad Men, what that story is telling, is it's saying, hey, there's all, this, there's all this incredible darkness. It's within all of us in different forms, and it's so destructive. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something, there's something good about a story like that. It can be good. It can be, in a way, edifying, because it helps us to understand and to see darkness in our culture, darkness in ourselves on a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say the same thing about Breaking Bad. Um, you know, Breaking Bad's this sort of incremental bad decision-making um, that leads to greater and greater harm and destruction. So, uh, so those are sort of the spectrums. The, the last thing I'd say on it is the, the two essential ingredients for helping to sort of shape and guardrail your loves and the things that you're consuming are your conscience. If your conscience is bothered by something that you watch, turn it off. Um, it's that simple. Um, because if you don't, you're going to sear your conscience and you're going to, it's not going to be there to guard you later. Um, the second thing is uh, a community, um, having open conversations with, with friends. Um, you know, I've had people come to me at various stages in my life who the, the community around them is sort of getting on them about the content that they were watching. I mean, there's a story in the book about a guy who came to me totally addicted to pornography, and we're meeting and we're talking about strategies, and he's, you know, his roommates are trying to sort of help him out of this addiction and stuff. As he's getting up to leave the room, um, to, to go back to his work, he's like, "Hey, you're going to see Sin City this weekend?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like, don't you get it that there's a connection between these?" He's like, "Oh, that stuff doesn't bother me, you know." And I'm like, "Well, that stuff's really mild in comparison to what you're consuming, but don't you see that the one is feeding the desire for the other? Don't you see that there's something there?" And that was a guy who had just seared his conscience to oblivion. 
Um, funnily enough, a quick story, I, a couple, a few months after the book came out, um, I hadn't seen that guy in a few years. He had, he had moved away, gone to another church. He came to town, and he was in town, um, and we were talking about something. It was, I think we were talking about Mad Men um, in this group of friends, and, and I asked him what he thought about it. He's a big movie buff, and he was like, oh, I haven't, I haven't watched it. And I was like, really? And I said, uh, I said, why? I was kind of surprised. It's based on our history. And, uh, and he said, you know, it, it, it bothers my conscience. You know, it leads, leads to bad places. He goes, by the way, that, that story in the book, the guy, since it, that was me, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Is that helpful? Yes. Well, so I guess I'll, I'll ask a question kind of coming at this biographically. Uh, I am, I'm a unique audience for this book in that I am not a, a TV guy, a movie guy, especially over the last 10 years. That kind of coincides with having kids, so right. my daughter's nine. And, uh, right. But I don't watch a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows, with one caveat. If, it, if, if the actors are uh, speaking British accents and it's set in the 1800s, I watch a lot of that. For, for my wife. Right. <laughs> but... but <laughs> Um, because because we enjoy watching it together, but yeah. but my my, my interaction with with uh, with media, with movies, with TV is is not very significant, um, and so there you did a good job in the book of of setting up what I needed to know from the stories to illustrate the the different reflections in the. Um, in the stories with regard to the, the, the big narrative of Scripture. And so I thought you did a really good job with that. Um, but, but I want to push, maybe just ask this question. So one way to see what you're doing here is, is a descriptive thesis, perhaps mm-hmm. an anthropological thesis, that yeah. uh, it is the case that the stories we tell uh, have reflections of the grand narrative of Scripture. And so they illustrate and, and embody even without knowing the great truths of, of the gospel and the Christian worldview. So that's a descriptive thesis. But at times I found myself thinking, well, should I be more engaged? Um, towards the end of the book, you talked about how seeing these stories in light of the gospel and in light of the Christian worldview actually make them shine more brightly, that, there's, that, that the art comes through in a way that is, is even more profound and more beautiful. And so I'm wondering if there's a prescriptive thesis here as well, and if so, how you would articulate that. I, I, don't, I certainly don't intend one. Um, I mean, I've honestly, since, since I finished writing the book, I watch way less than I did then. Like, I'm way behind. I'm only three episodes into Stranger Things, you know. Um, that's partly because, like... Uh, yeah, well, it's probably because it gives my wife panic attacks. Like she hates, like she hates scary stuff, and and I love her, and so I don't want to do that to her more than like once a week. Um, so, um, so, so I, I mean, I definitely one of the things that I've really, I've really come to see, and I think I talk about this a little bit, but is is the idea that our media consumption is almost like a spiritual discipline. It's shaping how we see things. It's shaping how we experience and know the world. Um, and, and so there's, for me, I'm, I'm way more skeptical about the good of these, uh, of media in general than I was before. Not, not all, not, uh, not downright dismissive of it because I do think there's, I stand by a lot, (laughs) I stand by what I said. Um, but I think that, I don't know, I think often a friend of mine's a guy named Harold Best. He's a, 
he's 84 years old. And one time, about four or five years ago, he made this comment. He said, you know, the older I get, the more convinced I am of this incredible liberty that we have as Christians for our engagement with the world and engagement with the arts. But I'm equally skeptical of my capacity for my soul to handle it well. Um, and so I, that, ha that has haunted me in some ways ever since. And so I definitely don't intend to be prescriptive. The, the element that I would, what I would want to prescribe to people is I would want to prescribe um, be engaged with the creativity of the world around you. And back to something we said earlier, you know, what, what do you feel like is an invitation? Um, and, and to frame it in a real Christian way, what do you feel like is an invitation? Because when you experience this, you experience the glory of God. You see the goodness of his creation, his creativity reflected in these different ways. Whatever that is, I would say, that's, worth, that's a worthwhile pursuit. Um, for me, genuinely, something like 30 Rock or Pearl Jam Verses or those kinds of things have that, have that sort of invitation for me um, and have at different seasons in my life. Um, but for other people, they won't. And so I definitely wouldn't want to push that on anyone. So for those who haven't read the book, just real quick, his thesis is largely, you know, Ross just kind of talked about it, but it, you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but the <laughs> thesis is not so much whether I should or shouldn't watch something, but rather in the stories that we do tell and the stories we watch, we're actually, they're all reflective of the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or as you say it, uh, consummation, consummation. Yeah. paradigm. And so he's actually placing different storylines within that paradigm and helping us to see why those stories resonate with us so much. And so... Um, one of the things I was really interested that you were drawing out, I'd love to see more, and I'd love to hear some more on this, is with Jamie Smith's work, Imagining the Kingdom, uh, there's a discussion that Jamie Smith talks about in his book, and it's kind of echoes of Marshall McLuhan and yeah. even Neil Postman's Amusing yeah. Ourselves to Death, some of those things. How, how does our television watching, our movie watching, actually become liturgy for us? You were mm -hmm. almost touching on it a minute ago. And how should we even be thinking about that? Because it, it's... While you're not going prescriptive, you're certainly describing something that yeah. is, an, is a modem of our worship patterns. Yeah. So as I sit and I binge watch, uh, currently we're finishing up Burn Notice on mm. Netflix. It's a mediocre show, but it keeps me working out longer because yeah. I watch it on there. <laughs> so as I'm on si season I'll six... I'll watch anything with Ash from the Evil Dead. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as I'm, I'm finishing up season six while I'm trying to do workout in there, and I'm just thinking, okay, is this shaping myself more than providing amusement? Yeah. And so could you think about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so a big, a big part of Jamie's argument, and I'm, I'm compelled by, by Jamie's argument very much, a big part of his argument is that when we think about sort of uh, uh, the transformative work that we're trying to do as Christians um, and the transformative work that's being done on us in culture, we often, we tend to think of this in purely rational categories. Um, and, and this is something I'll talk a, a lot about tonight. Um, but to try to sort of sum it up, it's this idea that, um, it's this idea that you know, the church has been guilty at times of approaching the transformative uh, work of the Christian life via catechism. So let's give people the right rational categories, the right propositions to, to know and believe, and that will make them into the right kind of people. Um, and so Jamie's emphasis is on, is on this idea that we've lost touch with formative practice. He points to worship and liturgy. Um, this is actually really similar to Dallas Willard's thesis in The Divine Conspiracy and, and Reformation of the Heart, where Willard says we've lost touch with these Christian practices like spiritual disciplines that were meant to be the primary ways that were formed. 
And, and the reason for that is that we're, we're every bit as much affective creatures as we are rational creatures. So the power of stories is that they tend to resonate with us and operate on us in those less rational, not irrational, but less, like more non-rational kind of ways. They get at our emotions, they get at our affections, they profoundly work on our imaginations. And because of that, um, they have ways of sort of shaping the affect uh, and orienting our, our life around ideas that are, um, um, that, that then draw us into sort of a way of life and, and action. Like my favorite example of this is actually um, HGTV, right? Like it seems very benign, like what on earth could you possibly object to about, you know, the kinds of stories that are being told on H HGTV? But, but first of all, there's every single one of those stories, like my favorite, um, well, not my favorite, my favorite, I'll get into that later. The, um, one of the examples that I think is, is really helpful is the show Love It or List It, right? So they come to a house, and these people are sort of, they're, they're, they, they have an existential crisis. They're not happy in their homes. And so they go on this quest, right? And while they're on this quest looking at different options, there's a renovation going on at their home. And the end of the show, they either find their dream home out in the world, or they come back home to realize that everything they ever wanted was already there in the first place, you know? Um, Either way, there's sort of this utopian happy ever after thing that happens, that happens on this. Um, I think that show is powerful. I think that show is really formative and powerful because it's a, it's a liturgy. It's a story that gets exercised again and again that ends with happy home, happy life. You know, That ends with this sort of utopian vision of now we're home and we're satisfied. And, and to press a little deeper into it, here we are, from a Christian perspective, saying we are exiles from a garden and we long to go home. These stories of homecoming, you know, that, that, seem, very, that seem very flat and commercial and benign in so many ways, are probably operating a, on us at a soul level that we're, that we're unaware of, which is why HGTV is one of the show, is one of the networks that people just get utterly addicted to and it's on all the time in, in certain people's homes. Um, so I, I think of that as a perfect example of like a cultural liturgy. It's a story that's being told that is desire, uh, that's formative of our desires in a way that, you know, to use Jamie's language, that orients us towards a vision of the good life. What is the good life? The good life is satisfaction in a home, in a homecoming. Um, and we certainly, we certainly aren't, well, it's going to be rare that a person intuits that by flipping on HGTV and watching Love It or List It. Mm -hmm. So... Which kind of begs a question. I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, because um, a lot of these a lot of these stories are you, you touch on this in the book, and I loved it. A lot of stories will live, leave you with a happy end, ever ending. Uh, Disney movies, Sabrina movies, uh, Sense and Sensibility movies. It ends at marriage, yeah. not all the mess after marriage. Maybe right. with the exception of Up, which yeah. is a tremendous depiction of marriage and yeah. the pains involved with that. So um, I think to that point is that yeah. it's creating almost an idol of that which we're longing for as opposed to right. placing us in there on there. So Yeah, no, I, I would I would absolutely agree. And I think and I think it's like it's complex because there's there's an element to that kind of storytelling that is utopian and is illusory and it orients people towards thinking, man, if I can just get marriage right, then I'm gonna be truly happy. And then when they are in their marriage and they're not truly happy, they think, Oh I screwed up on the way to getting here, I just need to do it over again. Um, and so there's something damaging about that kind of storytelling, 
but but then there's this other there's this other layer of it that's like hey the the uh, you know uh, creation history is going to end with a wedding ceremony mm -hmm. and that will be utopian mm -hmm. you know um, so there's one. so one of the things that Jamie says that I think is helpful is that having having the lenses to kind of understand these stories and to, to really think about the, the formative ways that they're affecting on us actually does a whole lot to disarm them mm. and you know and gives us categories to then begin to using our reasonable re rational capacities begin to steer the work you know so to speak and and allow us to, to engage thoughtfully so that we can be less affected or be affected in ways that are maybe more positively formative and one of the things that strikes me about the book is the pervasiveness of story that you find yeah. uh, throughout culture and so one question i have uh, is thinking about the way that we juxtapose story against something that seems to be somehow non-story, like so catechism as an example, yeah. uh, for, for this particular audience, right? Thinking about the story of the Bible versus like a systematic theology. It's one of those things having narrative and one of them somehow being without narrative. But what's compelling to me about Jamie Smith's argument is the, way in, the ways in which we're being formed by story when we're, when we're unaware. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, whether or not you really think that there are things that are non-story. Does a systematic theology or a catechism that doesn't maybe present itself as narrative, is it really somehow non-story and so shaping us in a different way from the way that you see stories yeah. shaping us? No, I mean, I, I think there's an utter necessity for that kind of work. I mean, that's, that's the way the world, you know, that, that's, that's every bit as much a part of the way the world works and operates and the way the human being works and operates. Um, because of those, there's a, I think there's, there's sort of a, there's some kind of reciprocal or symbiotic relationship between the rational and the non-rational in, in human beings and in human culture. Um, rational ideas that came about in the modern era about the way the world worked gave birth to a whole set of stories and ideas that shaped, you know, to borrow Charles Taylor's phrase, that shaped the social imaginary, like the background of our thinking and operating and all of that. That came from rational work that people like Freud, Marx, and others were saying about this is the nature of reality and human experience. Um, you know, similar things with like the sexual revolution, you know, the work of people like, you know, Michel Foucault sort of deconstructing gender and deconstructing our sexual categories. That's, that's very much rational work. Now you can, you can really dig into this and go, his desire for the liberty to do the things he wants to do, drive his rational mm -hmm. philosophical work that creates a framework that allows other people mm -hmm. to sort of justify, and then you get the storytelling, and then the next thing you know, Modern Family is one of the number one shows on television, right? Um, where, where things that 30 years ago would not have been sort of the social norm are now part of the social norm. Um, so there's something symbiotic about it, exactly how those dynamics work. I, I don't know which one leads. I don't even, I don't even know. Well, and a part of your work in the book is rational work on the yeah. affective. Absolutely. So, so you're, you're arguing that it's important for us to be thoughtful yeah. in our engagement. And so I think that's getting at that symbiotic relationship. That Yes, yeah. our affections are being shaped. Our desires, our loves are being shaped. But we need, to, we need to think about that and recognize it. Yeah. And the more thoughtfully we engage, the better. And so there is that yeah. symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it's like our Christian confession gives us these guardrails. And, and uh, that, our commitment to that confession should shape, should, should in a sense be a measuring stick for the creative work we do mm -hmm. and for the things that we consume 
creatively as well. Because um, our confession is a very rational thing, but it's also a story. You know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, you know, yeah, I won't recite the Apostles' Creed because I'd probably miss a line or two along the way. But it's, a, it's simultaneously a story, but it's also a set of propositions that we're going to, we're going to cling to. Mm -hmm. so. It seems like there's even some ap apologetic work that could be done here in engagement with culture that, that part of what we can do when we engage with um, the non-believer who may even espouse at a, at a commitment level uh, beliefs that are very nihilistic and uh, very um, life def deflating. Uh, but we can say, but look, the way you, yeah. the, the way you, long for and love these kinds of stories shows an inconsistency yeah. in, in your life. And, and that inconsistency is there for a reason yep. um, because you were created to, uh, to know these truths deeply. And so uh, yeah. it just seems like there could be um, oh, a, a way, to, way to push on our culture in that way. Well, and I think there's, you know, we, we, we love stories of sort of, um, we tell all kinds of stories about natural disasters and people who make great sacrifices to save lives and these kinds of things. And, and those stories are celebrated by atheists mm -hmm. who believe that all of life is going to one day be swallowed up into blackness and nothingness. You know, um, I, one, of the, the, one of the metaphors for this I always think of is how, how crazy would it be if you're walking down the street one day and uh, you, know, you see a, a little kid crossing, like Jay walking across the street, and you see a bus coming, and you run out there, and you grab the kid, and you pull him out of the way of the bus just in time, and, you know, you set him down on the sidewalk, and you go, man, that was really close, and the kid looks at you and goes, well, one day I'm going to die anyway, you know, <laughs> right? Like, that, now that might happen in a Stephen King novel, right? <laughs> but, but in order, like, that never happens, you know, and, and like, no one, in the, no one who witnesses that is going to go, well, why'd you go to the trouble for that, you know, like, this is, this is, we're all destined for the same end. Um, we would never do that because what's written on our hearts is this impulse to preserve life and, to, and, and this impulse that says that life has meaning and value. And our stories reflect that all the time. Um, and so there's a, yeah, there's definitely a, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a conflict of ideas there, um, for sure. I mean, thinking about the, the conflict between like the rational and the affective between maybe the story and the system. Um, I, I thought I could ask you a question that my, that my students uh, typically struggle with. So in Survey of American Literature, uh, we read this account of a slave who's brought from Africa uh, to the Americas. Hmm. And uh, he tells the story of the Middle Passage, of the transatlantic slave trade, of all of his suffering, of the suffering of his brothers and sisters and everyone that he's around. And uh, so then in, in recent years, though, scholars have suggested that, in fact, that this particular person, Alauda Equiano, was not actually born in Africa, but was born in the Americas. Um, and so I, I, I asked my students, does that, does that matter, right? Yeah. And the, the, the affect, the, the ethos of the story, the pathos, what it, what it pulls out of us, and then the, the argument that is wrapped up in that story against slavery. And they are oftentimes divided on this. Some say it doesn't matter at all whether or not you know, he was really born there. And others say it completely matters. It compromises him. If I can't believe that, then how can I believe any and all of this? Right? And I wonder what you would say to that, or even to maybe the parishioner or the student who would come up and say, you know, is the book of Job right, a myth, 
mm-hmm. right, that teaches us these things, and they create this binary, right? Or right. is it this historical yeah. fact, this retelling of this person's life? I mean, how thinking about that war of the rationally affective, thinking about the story versus yeah. right, the fact, maybe a binary that we don't necessarily need. I'm wondering yeah. how you would react. I, so I lean on the side of... Um, I mean, obviously, there's, a, there's the complexity of this guy's presenting it as fact, and it's not fact, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but I, I tend to lean on the side that when, when creative people create something, um, it, it sort of goes out in the world, and it takes on a life of its own. And it's necessary, it's necessary to allow some distance between the creator and the, and the creation, uh, low care C. Um, because the main reason for this is simply... We are mysteries to ourselves. And so an artist who makes something and says, you know, an artist makes something and then the critic receives it and makes his commentary on it, it doesn't matter if the artist comes back and says, hey, that's not what I meant. Because the critic can go, you have no idea what you meant. Like, you, the creativity, you don't even know, you talk to any artist, they don't entirely know where their creativity comes from. Um, and so... Because of that, and because of what, what I believe about the Christian worldview and what it means to be made in the image of God, um, I have great confidence that our image-bearing capacity is having a tremendous effect on the kinds of work that we do and the stories that we tell. That's the reason why atheists tell stories. You know, somebody like Brian Koppelman, um, who I love um, as a person and as a filmmaker, who is a, uh, you know, a staunch and ardent atheist, tells these stories that are deeply moral, and you know, he, wrote, he writes the show Billions. He tells these stories that are deeply moral and deeply human because he's made in the image of God and he can't help but value life, value humanity, value ethics on, on certain levels. Um, and so because of that, I tend to think like, it's important to distance that stuff. I mean, that's, there's no way that most of the creators of most of the shows and movies that I talk about in the book would agree with me that that's what their stories mean. Um, uh, but I think, but I have confidence in that, not because I think I'm right, but because I think Scripture's right about them. Um, so yeah, I mean, in that case, like the other thing I think of is, is the J.T. Leroy phenomenon. Yeah. You heard that story, like J.T. Leroy, this author publishes a book. I think it was ten years ago or something. It was this huge literary phenomenon, and it was this sort of gender dysphoric, you know, young guy who had gone through these horrible, horrible upbringing, prostitution, abuse, all this stuff and had written this novel. Um, and it was celebrated, and it was like, everybody was like, this is the new literary genius. Um, and lo and behold, it comes out after, after, yeah, it comes, it's hard to explain all the details, but it comes out a few years later that J.T. Leroy is not this horribly abused young child prostitute who became this literary phenomenon. J.T. Leroy is a morbidly obese woman from, you know, from New England. Um, and, and, and because, because the world had so attached the narrative of J.T. Leroy as this boy who's been through these things telling these stories, that when it came out that J.T. Leroy was a morbidly obese woman from the Northeast and not from the South and not a man, you know, um, uh, the whole literary, literary establishment fell apart over it um, because they were celebrating the work because of who they thought this person was, not because of the work itself. Um, and so it brings the same question to bear. Well, does the work stand on its own? You know, um, and, and I think I mean I think it's a perfect example that that art, um, which is very dark stuff, 
But that art went out into the world. You know, I love the way Dan Seidel talks about this. The, the work of the artist is to sort of offer a gesture out to the world. And the response of people who, uh, who encounter it, um, it is, is, there, is, is in a sense a response to that gesture. And there's no controlling how that relationship is. You know, a gesture might go out and offend. It might go out and encourage. Well, in J.T. Leroy's case, this art goes out into the world, and people are so moved by it because there's something deeply true about it. Um, they didn't want to accept that what was true about that book was true apart from the identity of the writer. But it probably still was. So, Fascinating conversation. Um, we have a microphone in the back we want to give, just before we close, give an opportunity uh, for those who might want to ask a question to Mike or maybe even the panel. So if you have a question, would you raise your hand at this time? Yes, up here and then the second one will be Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is David. I'm a PhD student in theology and worship, so all the liturgical language stuff is uh, very enticing. Um, but I have a question about using this framework of your book, which I have not had time to read, and I would blame my professors for that, because I'd very much, I'd love to. Uh, however, I have had a chance to read uh, Joseph Campbell, um, and he has a, a different framework for understanding right. this pervasive narrativeness of humanity. So how might you interact with um, the way Joseph Campbell yeah. frames up the distillation of story uh, yeah. across cultures. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I engage with Campbell in one chapter. Okay. I think that, um, I think he's tapping into something that's very true. Um, and uh, Campbell's basic premise is that all stories revolve around this, this framework of the hero's journey, you know, going away, encountering difficulty, all of that sort of ending with homecoming. Um, and and Campbell, Campbell's framework, you can see Almost any superhero narrative, um, certainly the Star Wars narratives are, you know, probably intentionally in Lucas's case built around that. Um, so yeah, I think I think Campbell's tapping into something very, very, very profoundly human in this longing for, it, you know, th those are almost always sort of redemption stories um, and, and overcoming the darkness kind of tale um, with with generally speaking, with, with either flawed or deeply wounded characters at the core. Um, so yeah, that would be my, yeah, it's like chapter seven. <laughs> then I think we had a question over here. Yeah. Um, my question comes more from some personal experiences I've had that have caused me to think about really the I guess the way, the difference between the way things are presented in literature and the way they're presented in film and the way that affects us. And I'm gonna give a couple of examples to kind of clarify sure. my point. I had a friend a few years ago who loved the Game of Thrones novels. Was very excited about the television show when it came out and was very convicted when she watched it. <laughs> um, and because of that, turned around and rejected the novels entirely and decided that because she was convicted by the show, the novels were obviously horrible and leading her into sin. Right. Um, I had a similar, similar initial experience with the, the Deadpool movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, the comics have always been something that just make me laugh. Yeah. Um, and as I heard about the movie, I was excited about it. And then I started seeing previews for it and thinking about it, and I started realizing that Everything that I enjoy about the comics, actually seeing them on screen in a film, was yeah. just going to be offensive. And so my question is, is this more 
or some combination of these two or something else entirely. Um, but is this more a difference between how things come across in film and in literature, and there are some things that are appropriate in literature that are not appropriate in film? Mm -hmm. Or is this more seeing something on the screen allows me to realize that it really wasn't appropriate in literature in the first place, even yeah. though I thought it was? Yeah, good question. That's a great question. I think to try to sort of give, so my example of that would be um, uh, Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road. Um, one of my favorite novels, when I was, especially when I was young, I, I read that book a million times. And there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of um, criminal behavior of various kinds happening throughout that book. Um, but to me, when I read the book, what the book was about was, was these human relationships, and particularly, you know, particularly this relationship between Dean Moriarty and Sal Paradise, which, which, was, which was about this guy who's sort of bookish and withdrawn being drawn out into a world that was bigger than him and frightening because Dean Moriarty's crazy and all this. So, love the book. Um, and the sexuality and stuff in it, the way Kerouac writes about it, he, he tells the story, but he, you know, it's not, it's not pornographic. You know, these things happen along the way in the story. Um, the film that was done a few years ago, in my opinion, just completely missed the point of what the book was about. The film is completely about the sexuality, the drugs, the drinking, and all of this. And along the way, just completely lost touch with what, what the book was after in terms of the relationships, the beauty, all of this. So to me, that's a great example because the way Kerouac tells the stories of those things, he presents you with what's happening, um, but he's not presenting it in a way that's, that's, that's pornographic. Um, where the film doesn't try to dodge that or doesn't try to avoid that. Same, I mean, Game of Thrones is an interesting one because George R. R. Martin is unapologetically pretty pornographic in his descriptions of the sexuality stuff. Um, and so, I, you know, I'd come to that one and I would say there's a, there's a for, for your friend, there's a clear conscience red flag and it's, it's wise to kind of follow that stuff. But I think in any case, I think in different media, um, there are different ways to approach sexuality and um, violence and all of these things. Um, and I always look for, like, how are they glorying in this stuff? Um, uh, to borrow a phrase from Harold Best again, you know, the difference between pornography and poetry is that pornography can only ever mean one thing. Um, you have deeply sensual stuff happening in the Song of Solomon. Um, there's a reason why in, in Talmudic tradition you wouldn't, weren't allowed to read it until you were old enough to marry because um, they thought it would inflame you with lust. Um, they had more respect for the poetry than, than we do in our culture. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's a place for sensual art. It's in the Bible. Um, there's a place for sensuality and storytelling and all those kinds of things. Um, but, but, there's, yeah, but there's definitely a spectrum of ways that that gets approached. And there's a, there's a way to write the Song of Solomon that's pornographic, um, which, which was not done, you know? Uh, there's probably a way to translate it. It's pornographic. Um, and there's a reason that we don't. <laughs> Just real quick with that, Kyle. I, I would, um, when I think of that kind of genre or that, that shifting of that, when I read The Lord of the Rings, I had a very precise picture of what Aragorn looked like. And then the movie came out, and it's competing with my imagination. right? But the difference there is once it hit the, the visual, it left no room for my imagination. 
And I think sometimes that's what happens with some of these, uh, totally. th these graphic depictions of them is all of a sudden uh, something that you could have redeemed mentally, it doesn't leave you room to redeem. And I think that's kind of what you're after there. Absolutely, yeah.